you hold worthwhile in this state. And we shall be blessed in the victory we are to win. Hi, and welcome to this podcast from World War One Day by Day. Over the last five years, I've documented the day-by-day course of the First World War on social media 100 years after the events first took place. You can see all the tweets from the last five years on Twitter at www.thegreatwar and on an equivalent Facebook page and on our website. Now we've reached the point 100 years after the end of the war, I've decided to switch the focus of the project to creating podcasts and articles on the subject of the Great War. And where better to start than with a closer look at the end of the war itself? This podcast is timed to be available around the 11th of November 2018. 100 years ago, a series of momentous events were coming to a head as the war-weary combatant powers reached the end of over four years of war. On the 11th of November 1918, the German armistice negotiation team was signing the armistice document that brought about an immediate ceasefire at 11am French time. But before we get into the detail of the events of that day, let's take a look back at the events that brought the Germans to the armistice negotiations in the first place. The fortunes of war had ebbed to and fro over the previous years of conflict. From the political flashpoints that compelled the nations of Europe to mobilise their forces, the events of the World War had seldom developed according to their plans. In fact, the mobilisation of the various armies was probably the last bit of the war where events had gone to plan. In 1914, the Germans, anxious to avoid a war on two fronts, had mobilised rapidly and had invaded Belgium and France in an attempt to knock France out of the war before Russia was able to bring her enormous manpower reserves into the field. The attempt failed, and the Western Front stagnated into relatively static trench warfare. Germany, now faced with war on two fronts, developed a clear superiority in defensive warfare on the Western Front and weathered repeated French and British attacks through 1915 before, in early 1916, unleashing their attempt to knock out the French at Verdun. The Battle of Verdun morphed into an attritional slog, with the German High Command stating that their intention was to bleed the French army dry. France just about held on, preventing the Germans from breaking through but suffering losses of nearly 377,000 men. The Germans also lost heavily and suffered yet more casualties as the British launched her new army into their great offensive on the Somme in the summer of 1916 in an attempt to relieve the pressure on the French. By 1917 things looked bleak for the Allies. The French army was suffering from outbreaks of mutiny and was largely spent as an offensive force. On the Eastern Front the Germans finally achieved their early war aim of knocking Russia out of the war. As revolutions swept across Russia Germany was able to inflict a humiliating defeat on the revolutionary government and finally free up her armies to fight in the West. Then, as the Allies lost one ally with vast manpower reserves but serious limitations, they gained another with similar strengths and weaknesses. America had long held on to isolationist policies, but the onset of German unrestricted submarine warfare that killed American citizens, coupled with skilful diplomacy by the British, brought them into the war. America was an industrial powerhouse with enormous manpower reserves, but her army was a novice compared with the battle-hardened armies fielded by the other allies. The American contribution had the potential to make a great difference, 
but it would take time for them to become truly effective. The race was now on. Could Germany pull back troops from the Eastern Front quick enough to deliver a knockout blow in the West before American ascendancy began to make itself felt? It was this strategic situation that led Germany to launch four great offensives in the spring of 1918 in an attempt to use their temporary numeric superiority to the best effect before time ran out. Known as the Kaiserslecht, or the Kaiser's Battle, the offensives were to throw the Allies into desperate defence as Germany achieved a massive tactical success, but these same offensives were to sow the seeds of Germany's eventual defeat. The Kaiserslecht offensives were really the beginning of the end, so let's get into those in a little bit more detail. Operation Michael was the main attack, smashing into the Allied front line at a point where the British and French armies met. The Germans planned on punching a hole through the front lines and then executing a flanking movement against the British army. Additional offensives were intended to prevent the Allies from reinforcing from other, less hard-pressed parts of the front. Launched on March the 21st, 1918, the attack was supported by an enormous artillery effort that fired well over a million shells in a five-hour period. Attacking through fog, the Germans broke through the lines in several places and forced the British 5th Army back in disarray. Operation Michael set out the pattern for subsequent operations as the German army attacked with greater success than any other belligerent on the Western Front to date. The Germans had adopted new flexible tactics that used well-trained storm troops to break through the front lines and then push deep into enemy's territory, leaving strong points isolated for following troops to mop up. The success of the initial thrust threw the Allies into crisis and brought the prospect of German victory into sharp focus. However, the German attacks lacked strategic intention beyond the initial breakthroughs and were more opportunistic than anything else. Perhaps if the newfound ability of the German army to break through the Allied lines had been coupled with achievable strategic objectives and innovative ways of keeping the army supplied, the outcome would have been different. But it wasn't, and the German offensive ground to a halt in April around the River Marne as the Allies allowed land of little strategic value to be traded for time and husbanded their reserves for eventual counter-attack. By August, the Allies were in a position to counterattack and began a series of offensives using advanced artillery techniques, tanks and reinforcements from other theatres, as well as the rapidly growing US Army. A series of sequential blows at various strategic points resulted in victories that pushed the Germans back over much of the ground they had taken in their offensive and pushed the German army to the point where the High Command knew that they were staring defeat in the face. Overnight on the 4th 5th of October, Prince Max sent a note to the Americans via Switzerland and requested that armistice discussions take place. The news that the request had been made rippled through military and civil society, rapidly weakening the German position further. On the 8th of October, President Wilson rejected the armistice note from the Germans, stating that agreeing to withdraw from occupied territory was a precondition for talks. By the 12th, the President had received suitable reassurances that the Germans were accepting his 14-point plan. The Germans agreed this, mainly because they needed an armistice whatever the cost, but also because on the face of it, a return to pre-war borders could mean that she might in theory retain Alsace-Lorraine. By the 17th of October, Ludendorff was advocating a withdrawal to a defensive line on the River Meuse that would allow Germany to hold off the Allies until winter halted their advance. A day later, Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria was writing to Prince Max of Baden, explaining the crippling shortages of men and material, and stating that, We must obtain peace before the enemy breaks into Germany. 
it was obvious to Germany's leaders that the only way to preserve their way of life was to gain some kind of relief from the crushing pressure their nation found itself under. The need for an armistice was becoming critical. With reassurance from the Germans that they were prepared to adhere to his political programme in the hand, President Wilson then wrote to the British and French governments on the 23rd of October, suggesting that they prepare their armistice terms. Army postal censorship reviews from the time show that morale had taken a hit when it was announced that the government was seeking an armistice. However, the news was wrapped up. The people of Germany could see that the decision to seek an armistice was a likely admission of defeat. An attempt to put the German high seas fleet to sea on the 29th to provoke a decisive battle with the British resulted in a mutiny and the abandonment of the operation. As well as unrest on the home front, Germany's allies were beginning to collapse around her. The Turks, one of the Germans' most reliable allies, stopped fighting on the 31st of October when the Treaty of Mudros came into effect. Also on the 31st of October, the Ottoman Empire ceased to fight when its armistice with the Allies came into effect. The Austrians signed their armistice on the 3rd of November, with hostilities ending just 24 hours later. An isolated Germany bent under the pressure. Kaiser Wilhelm left Berlin for the Belgian town of Spa on the 31st of October, as debate raged about his future. Politically, he was under pressure to abdicate, perhaps in favour of his son. Other voices suggested he go to the front and seek a glorious death fighting for the fatherland. On the 2nd of November, German soldiers being transferred from the eastern front to the west mutinied rather than going into battle, while 20,000 soldiers in Kiel threw their lot in with the revolutionary sailors on the 4th. Throughout early November, sailors at ports across the country were continuing to revolt, leading Admiral von Hintz to travel to Spa on the 8th to inform Kaiser Wilhelm that the German navy is no longer following orders. Late in October, Ludendorff had been dismissed, and General Wilhelm Groner put in his place. Groner began a tour of the front, and by the 6th of November, reported to the Kaiser that an armistice had to be in place by the 9th of November in order to stave off collapse. Moving back to Wilson's suggestions that the Allies prepare their terms, let's look at some of the political considerations in the Allies' minds. It's important to understand that the Allies weren't simply glad to see the end was in sight and were just falling in behind Wilson's 14 points. There was still a strong element of realpolitik in play as each nation sought to ensure a favourable peace that was in their national interests. On the French side, Marshal Foch had written to Prime Minister Clemenceau that the aim of the ceasefire terms should be to put in our hands sanctions that will guarantee that in the peace negotiations we obtain the conditions that we wish to impose on the enemy. Conscious that France was fading militarily, he was determined to establish facts on the ground that would put them in good stead for the future peace treaty negotiations. While Clemenceau railed against military interference in political issues, the general view of the country supported Foch's position. The British were quick to insist that military considerations, as determined by the military leaders, should be given equal consideration to political decision-making. Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, found himself politically isolated in his cabinet in advocating the most punishing terms possible. The British were also concerned that, with American power increasing, their weight at the table would decline and their chance of achieving a favourable British peace would diminish over time. As such, an armistice now was likely to be materially better than one discussed later. 
Woodrow Wilson struggled to balance his political views, his desire to establish a new framework for peace, and the facts on the ground. As the American position evolved and the Germans shifted their positions, specifically on democratisation and demilitarization, the basis of an American and German agreement began to emerge. Coupled with the fear that as the British and French achieved military ascendancy over Germany, his bargaining position would degrade, Wilson was now in a position where he needed to push for peace in order to establish his new world order. With the Germans, British, French and Americans all believing that an armistice was in their interests, it became more likely that the war could end. It's important to remember that up to this point, every belligerent believed that they were better off pursuing the war than in seeking peace. Wars without a decisive outcome need political solutions, and now, with the political position favourable for peace, all that was left was for the terms to be agreed. The Allied commanders met in Paris between the end of October and the 4th of November and discussed the terms that they would bring to the table in any armistice and peace discussions. As with all the Allies, the British position evolved over time. Lloyd George started from a position that Germany should be thoroughly and utterly defeated before peace was discussed, Otherwise, there was a chance that Germany would have to be fought again within the next 20 years. With hindsight, how right he was. Haig was of the opinion that the military position would be very difficult if the war continued. He maintained that the Germans had proved that they were well able to defend their borders, and therefore attempting to pursue draconian terms could result in the breakdown of the talks, and this would result in the need to conquer Germany by force in costly military operations. Henry Wilson, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, while sharing Haig's concerns, was more hawkish and was determined that the armistice would leave the Germans unable to fight on. As the preeminent naval power, the view from Admirals Beatty and Weems at the Admiralty was that any peace should leave Britain's naval superiority in place. General Pershing, for the US Army, was more hawkish than the British or French commanders. He favoured pushing on for total victory and defeating the Kaiser on his own soil, perhaps because he felt his army could only get stronger and stronger. However, his view carried a lot less weight than the politicians in Washington. Throughout these discussions, one thread can be traced through. Each country was conscious that the armistice terms would establish the facts on the ground for the peace negotiations that would follow. It was widely recognised, at least among the British and French leadership, that once the armistice was in place, it would be very difficult to restart the war should peace negotiations fail, and therefore the most advantageous position should be achieved ahead of those talks. Around midnight, on the 7th of November 1918, Paul von Hindenburg sent a request to Marshal Foch. The German government, having been informed through the President of the United States that Marshal Foch had received powers to receive accredited representatives of the German government and communicate to them the conditions of an armistice, the following plenipotentiaries have been named by it. Matthias Erzberger, General H.K.A. von Winterveld, Count Alfred von Obendorf, General von Grönel, and Naval Captain von Sallow. The plenipotentiaries request that they be informed by wireless of the place where they can meet Marshal Foch. They will proceed by automobile with subordinates of the staff to the place thus appointed. The two leaders exchanged telegrams, arranging the time and place, culminating with Hindenburg stating the practical complexity of crossing the front lines. From the German outposts to the French outposts, our delegation will be accompanied by a road-mending company, 
to enable automobiles to pass the La Capelle Road, which has been destroyed. With this agreed, the German delegation left the Belgian town of Spa during the day of the 7th of November, heading to the agreed crossing point on the Chimay Formi La Capelle Guise Road, and crossed the front lines and were escorted into French territory. Travelling in five cars, the delegation was escorted, after a long drive through devastated territory, to a waiting train, in which they travelled through the night, waking the next morning in the Foyer de Compiègne. Heading the German delegation was Matthias Erzberger, of the Catholic Centre Party and a known advocate of peace. It was hoped that sending Erzberger instead of a Prussian officer might result in a more acceptable outcome. Erzberger was accompanied by representatives of the German Army, Navy and Foreign Ministry, Major General Detlev von Winterfeld, Captain Ernst Wanzelow and Count Alfred von Obendorf. The German delegation was ushered into a railway dining car that was positioned in a forest clearing. Waiting to receive them were Marshal Foch, the commander of all Allied forces, and Admiral Sir Rosalind Weems, Britain's first sea lord. Between them, they represented the Allies' negotiating position for the war on the land and for all naval matters. Foch received the German delegation with formal courtesy, but the atmosphere was chilly. The talks began with a lengthy presentation of the Allies' 34 preconditions for an armistice. With translations, the whole process took over two hours. The German delegation was surprised by the sweeping nature of the terms. They had hoped that they'd be able to negotiate an armistice that would allow them to withdraw their armies back into Germany in order to quell social unrest at home. However, Marshal Foch was clear this was to be very much the Allies' peace. The first 11 clauses in Section 1 covered the military situation mainly on the Western Front. Clauses 1, 2 and 3 dealt with the cessation of hostilities six hours after the signing of the armistice and covered the withdrawal of German troops from the occupied territories of Belgium, France, Alsace-Lorraine and Luxembourg within 14 days of the ceasefire. Any German soldiers left after that time frame were to become prisoners of war and at the same time all Allied prisoners of war were to be repatriated. The fourth clause contained a list of demands for the surrender of war material, such as guns and transport, that was to be handed over to the Allies. These demands were designed to weaken the German war-making capability by robbing her of her heavy weaponry and her ability to manoeuvre. The fifth clause covered the withdrawal of German troops from occupied territory and the establishment of an army of occupation on German territory west of the Rhine. Here Foch included aggressive timescales for the German withdrawal. These timescales were designed to put enormous pressure on the Germans, forcing them to retreat in disarray that would result in much of their heavy equipment being abandoned. The Allies were to follow behind the German army as it withdrew and were to hold bridgeheads across the Rhine, allowing an easier invasion of Germany in the event that hostilities were resumed. In addition to withdrawal, clauses 6, 7 and 8 prohibited the kind of scorched earth withdrawal that the Germans had used earlier in the war and were there to ensure that transport and other infrastructure was left undamaged, as well as protecting the inhabitants of liberated regions from harm or forced migration. As a part of the withdrawal, any delayed action explosives or mines left in situ had to be declared, as well as the locations of any poisoned wells that had been damaged before the armistice terms had come into effect. Clause 9 required Germany to foot the bill for any Allied occupation forces on German territory, while Clause 10 covered the immediate repatriation of prisoners of war. Finally, 
the last of the military clauses covered the care of injured personnel already under the care of German medical facilities. And that was just the first section of the document. Sections 2 and 3 of the terms covered Germany's eastern frontier and African forces, governing withdrawals, restrictions on German action and imposing complete freedom of movement for the Allies. Section 4 contained two clauses relating to the repatriation of civilians and, importantly, the establishment of reparations to pay for the damage caused by Germany, as well as the return of gold reserves appropriated during the war. Section 5 was all about naval matters and contained 13 separate clauses. Broadly speaking, the naval terms opened with similar clauses to those for the land conflict, covering the cessation of all fighting, return of prisoners and declaring the location of all naval forces. In addition, the German government was ordered to communicate the cessation of hostilities to neutral countries, signalling the end of any threat to their shipping. The next two clauses, 22 and 23, were sweeping and affected the entire German navy. Perhaps as an indication of the pain that the submarine campaign had caused the Allies, the U-boats were addressed first. All submarines were to be interned in neutral ports of the Allies' choosing. Similarly, all major vessels of the surface fleet were to be interned, with specific numbers of capital ships included in the armistice terms. However, the terms continued to lesser ships. All other naval surface ships, even including rivercraft, were to be concentrated in German naval yards, ready for disarmament. Later clauses covered the surrender of naval aircraft covering fixed-wing aircraft and much of the Zeppelin fleet, as well as the return of any other nation's merchant shipping that was held by the Germans. Continuing the naval terms, Clause 24 specifically covered the declaration of marine minefields and the Allies' right to sweep them clear, while 24 covered the minefields of the Baltic Sea. Here the situation was complicated by the existence of land fortifications as well as the sea minefields to control sea lanes. The Allies were to be given sweeping and unfettered access to occupy and clear these obstructions as they saw fit. As a part of the Allies' intention to keep their boot firmly on the German military's neck, the British blockade, which had brought the Germans to the point of starvation, was to be maintained with no anticipated end point. The Allies would control what supplies would be allowed to enter the country entirely at their discretion. At the same time, any restrictions imposed on neutral powers by Germany in relation to import and export were to be lifted and the neutral powers were to be informed that they were free to trade with the Allies. Clauses 28 and 29 covered the evacuation of the Belgian coastline and the Black Sea ports and an obligation not to destroy or remove the infrastructure of those regions. The naval terms were completed by terms preventing Germany from destroying her own naval assets or from trying to circumvent the armistice terms by transferring those assets to neutral powers in order to avoid surrender. Section 6 related to the armistice itself, covering how it was to be governed and setting its duration at 30 days with the potential to extend it as necessary. The German delegation was taken aback by the sweeping nature of the terms presented to them. They'd hoped that they would be able to negotiate an armistice more as an equal and would leave their armed forces more or less intact so they could withdraw them and deal with the social unrest and threat of the Bolshevik revolution at home. However, these terms made it clear that the Allies had no intention of leaving the German military in a functional state and by implication little interest in the state of the German home front. Marshal Foch was clear this was to be very much the Allies' peace. As well as the military clauses there was a final sting in the tail a deadline set in Section 7, 
the Germans had just 72 hours to make up their minds and sign the armistice. An attempt by the Germans to request a further day on the grounds that various arms of government and parliament needed to ratify the armistice was dismissed out of hand. Once shared, the terms of the armistice were carried across the front lines to the German government and to Chancellor Ebert. By November the 10th, incidentally the same day that Kaiser Wilhelm departed Spa for exile in Holland, Chancellor Ebert had agreed to the terms and radioed. The German government accepts the conditions of the armistice communicated to it on the 8th of November. However, the negotiations were not over. Hindenburg intervened, expressing concerns about parts of the settlement. He was specifically concerned that the Allies' demands concerning lorries and railway carriages would make it difficult to keep the economy running. As well as concerns about the economy, the need to deal with the threat of Bolshevik revolution was highlighted. Could Germany retain more weaponry, particularly machine guns, to allow the army to intervene on the home front? As well as these practical matters, the numbers of aircraft that were to be surrendered was flagged up as impractical. Losses had been such that Germany didn't have the number demanded. Finally, it was requested that the German army be allowed to march on a more direct route into Germany via Holland in order to save time. Hindenburg instructed Erzberger to push as hard as he could for these concessions, but if push came to shove, they were to sign the armistice. Germany simply couldn't risk the war continuing. The final round of talks began at 2am on the 11th of November. Erzberger was able to present Hindenburg's arguments and did achieve some concessions to the Allied demands, although these didn't amount to much in the grand scheme of things. In the end, the number of aircraft to be surrendered was reduced by 300 to 1,700. Germany was also permitted to keep 5,000 of the 30,000 machine guns demanded and half of the total lorries included in the terms. Finally, the neutral zone that was to be established to the east of the Rhine was narrowed to allow German troops to remain in the critically important Ruhr region and the amount of time that the Germans had to withdraw over the Rhine was extended by six days. At 10 past 5 in the morning on the 11th of November, the armistice was signed. The German delegation read a pre-prepared statement protesting about the harshness of the terms for the people of Germany and concluding that a nation of 70 millions can suffer but it cannot die. Foch's response was a terse, très bien. Following the signatures, a photo was taken and the delegates dispersed. At about 5.30am, Foch sent the news to the Allied and American commanders. Hostilities will cease on the entire front, November 11th, at 11am French time. The news of the ceasefire was passed out along the fronts. In some areas, combat operations all but ceased, with nothing but sporadic shellfire and a live-and-let-live approach from both sides. But in other areas, the war continued as usual, either because the news had not reached them yet, or because commanders were keen to achieve specific objectives ahead of the deadline. Foch himself was on record as stating the Allies were to pursue the field greys until the last minute. British troops, led by General Freiburg, completed an operation to capture a bridge over the river Dondre at Lessines, racing to complete the mission before the ceasefire. The Americans in particular launched some major attacks in the small hours of the 11th. The US Marines suffered 1,100 casualties as they tried to cross the river Meuse while the 89th Division took over 300 casualties as they took the village of Stenay. RAF units were instructed to ensure that any combat operations in the run-up to the armistice had to be completed by 11am, 
and any aircraft should be back over Allied lines before the ceasefire came into effect. American long-range 14-inch railway guns fired their last shell at 10.57 and 30 seconds so that the shell would complete its flight before the fateful hour. With about two minutes to the ceasefire, a German machine gunner symbolically fired a complete belt of ammunition near some South African troops. Then he stood up, removed his helmet, bowed and withdrew to the rear. All in all, there were over 10,000 men wounded, killed or posted missing on the last day of the war. The total number is unclear, especially on the German side, but certain examples stand out. On the British side, Private George Edwin Ellison, serving with the 5th Royal Irish Lancers, was killed at 9.30 that morning on the outskirts of Mons in Belgium. The last French fatality of the war was Augustin Trebuchon, who was unlucky enough to be shot at 10.50 as he ran a message up to his compatriots on the River Meuse to inform them that hot soup would be served after the ceasefire began. Private George Lawrence Price, a Canadian soldier, was killed by a German sniper at 10.58 as his unit moved into the town of Ville-sur-Aisne in Belgium, while Henry Gunther, an American soldier, was killed at 11.59am and is widely regarded as the last soldier killed before the armistice. Gunther had been demoted from his rank of sergeant and as his unit advanced, came under fire and stopped moving. He charged towards the German positions, firing sporadic shots towards the enemy lines. The Germans, knowing that the ceasefire was imminent, attempted to wave him away, but to no avail. Gunther was shot as he approached too close to a machine gun. On the German side, there is no clear view of the final casualties, but one Lieutenant Thomas is generally cited as the final casualty. Thomas was shot when he approached American troops to tell them that his unit was retreating and that they were welcome to take over the house that they had been occupying. While the Allies dictated the terms, many in the German army were unaware of the wider strategic situation. Even on the 11th, General von Einem was to tell his troops in the German Third Army that firing has ceased, undefeated you are terminating the war in enemy territory. The message amongst many of the German commanders was clear. The German army had not been defeated in the field. The absence of a clear defeat and the sight of German soldiers returning to Germany from Belgium and France in good order helped to sow the seeds of the stab-in-the-back myth that maintained that the German army had been betrayed by the politicians. However, it should be remembered that the German army was not beaten in the field because the armistice was sought in time. Revolution or not, the army was near the end of its ability to fight and it was only a matter of time before it would be defeated, no matter how skilled its generals. The pace of events at the end of the war is reminiscent of the beginning of the conflict in August 1914, when a sequence of events overwhelmed the ability of politicians to control the situation. By 1918, despite both Allied and German assumptions that the war would continue well into 1919, the Central Powers suddenly reached the end of their ability to maintain a coherent defence and once the Austrians and Turks had sought an armistice, the German High Command find themselves out of control and forced to accept whatever terms would end the war. It was this sequence of events that after millions of deaths and untold suffering would lead to the armistice negotiations in the Foyer de Compiègne. The clearing in the forest where the armistice was signed became a pilgrimage site between the wars with a stone memorial that stated, Here on the 11th of November 1918, succumbed the criminal pride of the German Empire, vanquished by the free peoples that it sought to enslave.
I do hope you've enjoyed this podcast from 1914-1918war.com. Please do leave a review, especially if you've enjoyed it. You can also subscribe to the podcast in whatever player you use, and you'll be notified when the next podcast is available. The next podcast will be all about the German use of Zeppelins and how the Allies fought back against this new form of warfare. Thanks again for listening.